welcome to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations Interviews podcast, a series of brief conversations with leading China experts on key issues in the Sino-American relationship. For more interviews, videos, and links to events, visit us at www.ncuscr.org. Hello, everyone. This is Jan Barris, Vice President of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations, and we're delighted to welcome you to today's National Committee podcast. We have two guests today, both of whom are from the University of Toronto, so we appreciate them both coming down to New York for this event. Our guest moderator for today is Leo Sada, who's a professor of sociology, and our guest speaker is Diana Fu, who is a professor in the political science department. So, Sada, I'm going to turn it over to you. I know Diana's in good hands because you are one of the fellows in our public intellectuals program, and we're delighted that you're here tonight along with Diana. Thank you, Jen. Thank you, Jen. Uh, it's my great pleasure uh, today to moderate this podcast uh, about my University of Toronto colleague Diana Fu's uh, new and exciting book, Mobilizing Without the Masses, Control and Contention in China. Uh, so Professor Fu is Assistant Professor of Political Science at the University of Toronto and the affiliate, faculty affiliate of the uh, Asian Institute at the Monk School of Global Affairs. Um, so this new book is about uh, labor organizations and labor protests in China. Mm -hmm. So my first question for Diana is uh, really, uh, how did you become interested in studying labor organizations in China? Yeah, thanks for asking that question, Sada. Well, it really got started in 2009 when I was a um, doctoral student at Oxford, and I actually hadn't expected to study these organizations at all. In fact, I didn't even know they had existed. Um, as we know, China's 280 million migrant workers are still only legally represented by the one state uh, union, the ACFTU, and independent unionization is banned. So I went into the field uh, during my doctoral studies with a far more conventional goal, which is to study worker activism, um, you know, strikes and protests and such. But by chance, I was invited to a conference to be um, a labor conference, really. And there I encountered a number of informal worker-run NGOs that were claiming to fight for workers' rights independently of the state-run union. And that fact alone kind of intrigued me because um, from the from the beginning, because independent unionization is banned in China, um, and these groups were also interesting because unlike other NGOs in China who were at least registered as businesses, many of these groups weren't registered at all. Um, they were essentially operating below the radar. And they also sort of didn't typically feel like your typical NGO. They were led by charismatic migrant workers, many of whom had limited formal education, um, but a great deal of personal knowledge about how to navigate the legal system. Uh, and they were informally called by staff members as the Laoda, the big bosses. And um, local scholars sometimes described them as nonviolent migrant gangs or triads. And the other thing I found interesting about them was that they were um, from time to time harassed by uh, the local authorities. In other words, whatever they were doing was somehow threatening to the state. And that was intriguing to me. So I sort of put on my researcher hat and began um, preliminary investigations. But of course, as you well know, having uh, doing the work that you do, the problem is that when you ask the worker leaders about how they organized and what their ultimate goal was, they had a very, very packaged answer for you, right? They would inevitably tell you that 
A, they provided uh, legal aid and consultation to workers, that B, they promoted legal consciousness, and C, they promoted some kind of unity or solidarity among the workers. And so I sort of went away um, thinking, well, if that's all they do, why why would the state feel that you know they, they're particularly threatening? And so I, I put on my researcher hat and um, and tried to investigate. I wanted to investigate what exactly they were doing in terms of mobilizing. Thank you. Uh, that's a really uh, fascinating story, but it's not uncommon because a lot of people going into field, you know, uh, trying uh, starting from one topic and then originally find something even more interesting. So. Uh, what intrigued me is really the title of your book. Uh, by the way, the book was published by uh, Cambridge University Press um, and, and got some re really uh, good reviews in the process. And the book's title is Mobilizing Without the Masses, which is a very puzzling title, right? Mm -hmm. how, how do you mobilize without the masses? And what do you mean by this title? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes, when I set out to the field, I certainly did not think that I was going to be writing a book titled uh, with great alliteration, right, <laughs> mobilizing without the masses. But it's basically, the concept is that it's a counterintuitive way for NGOs to mobilize in a repressive environment. So when we think about how mobilization takes place in democracies like U.S. or in Canada where we both teach, one of the key roles um, for civil society groups is to get people onto the streets and sometimes in great numbers to protest or to strike. And behind most successful social movements that we know of, namely, you know, the civil rights movement or the LGBTQ movement or the environment, environmental movement, are a network of civil society groups that help to mobilize the masses to take to the streets and to cause disruption. But in a liberal state, um, NGOs are not permitted to play such a role. Uh, they may be allowed to provide social services like education for children or uh, community sanitation, for instance, but forget about organizing protesters, right? So the central question of my book is really uh, how do weak NGO activists, you know, poorly resourced, repressed activists organize when they're not allowed to do so? when it's illegal for them to rally up the crowds, to take to the streets, to demand social change, what do these groups do? And so the answer really emerged organically from studying labor activism in China between 2009 to 2011. And what I found was this counterintuitive way through which they engaged in activism, which I now call mobilizing without the masses. And the gist of it is that instead of amassing workers to take to the streets to protest en masse, activists would coach them to challenge the state one by one. And in doing so, they're able to lower their own political risks because they're not overtly organizing a horde of people to, let's say, block traffic or to surround a government building. Um, doing so would be political suicide, and the activists knew that. So instead, what, what would they do? They would teach uh, workers who encountered them when and where and how to confront local authorities just one by one. And so this dynamic um, is named so because it contrasts with a rather familiar pattern of mobilization in which NGOs really get people to act collectively with the hopes of rallying the crowds to take action. And in this case, you have the same group of weak people 
and they form NGOs, but instead of rallying the masses to take to the streets to cause disruption, those NGOs rather atomize their actions, thus sort of disguising the collective element of coordination behind a facade of individualized action. That's very helpful. Uh, can you give us a few specific examples of how Chinese labor activists mobilize without the masses and any interesting anecdotes in the field? Yeah, sure. I'll, I'll tell you the one that I am, um, that perhaps I remember the most vividly because she was one of the first um, workers who I'd met in the field. And um, I'll just call her Ms. Chain. Uh, she was um, like many of her co-workers or many migrant workers, she was really badly injured um, from a machine. She worked at a, one of those illegal factories that had very poor safety protection. And so her arm was caught in a machine that made auto parts. And um, like many people in her position, her boss was unwilling to pay for her medical expenses, un unwilling to pay for injury compensation. Now, when I met her, she had found through word of mouth one of these labor organizations that I study. And um, she just spent, she and I, you know, spent a whole day chasing after bureaucrats in, in various bureaus. And in each, diff each agency, they told her, okay, we'll take down your case and, you know, we'll be in touch. You know, so basically the classic kind of tipicho, as we say in Chinese, kicking the ball around. And I watched her being dismissed by one official after another. And finally, she went back to the local labor bureau and she found the labor bureau chief in his office. And she said, if you don't solve my problem, I am going to take extreme measures. So to the bureau chief or to a bystander or even to a journalist, if, if one had been present, this might have, she might have just looked like any other desperate worker at the end of her rope. Um, but what he did not know was that she was actually coached by a labor activist in one of these labor organizations that she had contacted um, via text messaging telling her when, where, and how to make these actions, uh, how to make these threats. And when she made the threat finally to take extreme measures, the bureau chief immediately understood this as a challenge to his authority. Now, I was there, he didn't say anything necessarily, but he immediately dispatched a um, inspection team to the, the, her factory, we followed them, and uh, just a week later, she was able to gain her injury compensation. And so I tell this um, sort of anecdote because I feel like this uh, story really illustrates the key elements of mobilizing without the masses. And the most important element is that really there was a process of collective action, um, but that was really disguised behind Ms. Chain's individual threat. In other words, uh, when Ms. Chain showed up at the labor group, they could have told her, you know what, we have 30 other workers facing exactly the same problem as you. Why don't we round everyone up and go to the labor bureau and make a big fuss about it tomorrow? That would be the conventional way of mobilizing, right? Mobilizing with the masses. But they didn't do that. Why? Because they knew if they did that, their organization probably would not exist tomorrow. So when, what they did instead was tell her, you know, you gotta go there by yourself and you gotta escalate. <laughs> You gotta escalate slowly, but when you do escalate, you gotta make them feel that you might do something to threaten social stability if they're not gonna address your concerns. And it's through this, it's this combination of uh, organized by, but atomized action, this combination that makes it um, qualify, I think it makes it as an example of mobilizing without the masses. 
that's really helpful. So my last question is a difficult one. Uh, so with Xi Jinping's consolidation of power in recent years, uh, especially after the 19th Party Congress, uh, civil society group in China are under a lot of pressure. So in your view, what's the future of civil society activism? Oh boy, that, that is a very difficult question to answer, and I wish I had a crystal ball. Um, but I think, I think right now the conventional view is that civil society is being sort of crushed out of existence because the current administration has really stepped up its game, stepped up its repression on all kinds of groups, whether it be labor activists or lawyers or journalists or scholars, um, and the future indeed looks bleak. But I remain cautiously optimistic, right? I, um, as I've argued uh, in a piece I wrote for Foreign Affairs earlier, I don't believe grassroots activism will necessarily end just because of stepped-up repression. Um, I think there's always room for experimentation. Um, as activists become accustomed, perhaps, to a new normal under the current and the future Xi administrations, of which we don't know how many there will be, uh, there will undoubtedly, I think, be new ways to mobilize, even if it is not necessarily through traditional civil society organizations. Um, and who knows, there might be a mobilizing without the masses 2.0 with people disguising collective organizing behind, let's say, individual protests on social media. Or it could be something entirely innovative. I don't know. But uh, I know, as the old adage uh, says in Chinese, right, for every top-down policy, there is a bottom-up counter tactic. And I think that that will continue to be the case. I think so too. I'm also like you, uh, always optimist, no matter how pessimistic things might, might look in the short term. So thank you, Diana, for this uh, fascinating uh, podcast. And again, th uh, this is uh, a podcast with Diana Fu, professor of uh, political science at the University of Toronto, uh, talking about her book, Mobilizing Without the Masses, Control and Contention in China.